Radio Mano Papachango. if you've missed me but I have missed you I have been silent here for a couple of weeks the main reason being well the first week I guess I have no good excuse the second week I was essentially on the run from these fires in Southern California Uh, a little over a week ago I think it was a Thursday um I jumped in Scarlett Jovanson and was driving up to Big Sur because I was going to record a podcast with a guy named Charles Eisenstein on Friday at the Esalen Institute. I've been hoping to interview or you know meet Charles for a couple of years. He wrote a book called Sacred Economics, among other books, and I think that's the one that's most well-known. And a very smart guy, thinks a lot about money and economics, how we organize the world in terms of value and how that those values are reflected in our monetary systems. Interesting stuff. Anyway, he was going to be at Esalen. I thought, fuck, I'll drive up to Esalen and meet him up there. Why not? Take a couple of days, hit the road, take Scarlet out for a jaunt. And I was driving, it was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon or something. I was going down uh, 101 North And I saw all these police cars and tape and there was this building, people standing around um, with their hands over their mouths and the windows were all blacked out, covered tape, plastic taped over them. And I realized that that was the bar where there had been a mass shooting 17 hours earlier. 12 people dead. You may have already forgotten about it. It's been over a week and these things happen with such regularity now that it's like a fucking tornado in Kansas. It's, you know, it's in the news and then it's not. Um, Anyway, that was bizarre. I drove by and just sort of felt the, the presence of death and tragedy and insanity. And... That was the second mass shooting that I've driven by accidentally. The first was up in uh, Oregon when my buddy and I, Martin, were driving and uh, saw these police cars buzzing by. And that was the Rose something, Rosewood, Rosemont something, um, mass shooting at a community college. Anyway, so I drove by this thing and, and was having those thoughts. And I looked up ahead and I saw some smoke rising. And I thought, ah, some asshole's burning garbage. Bad day for burning garbage, man. And I just drove on and I got to Santa Barbara. And it was late afternoon. I thought, yeah, I'll camp out by the beach. I found this beautiful spot and hung out and watched the sunset. And um, next morning I got up. And I had some breakfast, and as I was having breakfast, I saw on the TV, like, all this fire was happening down south, where I came from, where I live. And 
I decided, fuck it, I'm going to go back um, because I want to be there to help out because I live in the guest house of a 92-year-old woman and I wanted to, you know, have my van and help her load her shit up in case we got evacuated, whatever. So I turned around, headed back south and by the time I got back home, which was only two hours away or something, I couldn't get in. The 101 was closed. I tried going down the PCH. Waze said that was open. For those of you who don't live in LA or know the roads, I apologize. It's an annoying thing that people who live in LA do talk about their highways as if everyone knows. Um, anyway, it was crazy. If you follow me on social media, on Instagram, you saw some of the photos I posted. It was post-apocalyptic. It was black sky. The sea looked black. And it was The sun was totally blotted out. It was crazy. And they closed off Topanga Canyon, and it's been sealed off for a week, maybe over a week, and they just let us back in last night. So I'm back home. It's still standing. Um, this canyon did not burn, but a lot of stuff did burn down. My cousin lost his house. Um, some other people I know lost their homes. The, the devastation is, is insane, as you know, if you've got a television set. Anyway, that's why there's been this long delay. I'm back, though, and I've got some amazing episodes to bring you some wonderful, wonderful people. This is a guy named Bruce Perry, who is one of the more interesting human beings you could ever hope to hang out with. Um, he's a, a documentarian. He's made several films. Uh, he had a TV show for years on BBC, I believe, called Tribe. Um, he's an indigenous rights act uh, advocate. He's a explorer. He was a Royal Marines commando officer. I think he taught, uh, survival skills to the Royal Marines. He, but the thing about him that is most impressive to me, I mean, he's done all these wild things, but what I love the most about him is the way he travels the way he, his his show tribe was him and I guess he had a sound dude and a camera guy and they would go and hike back or go on boats or however they got there to some extremely remote tribe and they and they would live there. And Bruce, the, the crew lived outside of the, the village, but Bruce would live right in the village and um, he would eat what they ate. He'd do what they did. He just immersed himself in their in their culture. Now, obviously, he didn't learn their languages, but his laughter and his sincerity and the, the genuine, decent human being that comes through his eyes allowed him entree into these worlds that are quite literally impossible for us to imagine this guy has traveled to distances that are yeah unimaginable even to me and i've i've been to a lot of these places but i stayed in the the last village i didn't you know walk out of that village into the forest as he's done over and over again um his first film 
which is called something crampons and uh, he mentions it in our conversation it's just him and his buddy um climbing this mountain in papua new guinea and along the way they meet and they're filming each other it's just the two of them with some cameras and uh they meet with some people who clearly have very likely never seen anyone from outside before um yeah it's incredible oh cannibals and crampons that's what it's called that was that was the first film uh and his show on bbc2 was called tribe i think the national geographic bought it and played it in the u.s on the national geographic channel but i think they called it going tribal and they changed and made it all silly um hit or at least the intro the show's the same he recently, he was on tour when we recorded this in San Francisco a month or so ago now. Uh, he was on tour promoting his latest film, which is called Tawai, T-A-W-A-I, A Voice from the Forest. And it's a film that um, looks into some of the issues that he looked at in his TV show, but it's, it's very much about this sort of the the extinction of people who live the way human beings have lived forever the last of them are on their way out which is pretty crazy when you think about that the last human beings living in the most human way to live which is that of a hunter-gatherer group the last ones they're almost gone and when they're gone, will there be any humans left? Because you and I aren't the stock. We're, we're some modern breed that grew out of that stock. We are poodles. And the hunter-gatherers are the wolves. We all came out of that. Those, and we all contain wolf within us. But they're wolves. And we're fucking pugs and poodles. No offense to you or me or pugs and poodles, but that's the reality of the situation. On that subject of wildness and so on, uh, I had a really interesting thought the other day. At least I think it's interesting. I'll share it with you and you can decide whether it's interesting or not. I'm going to insert it into Civilized to Death, uh, which I'm giving the final sort of read through i have a few friends who are reading it and giving me their comments i'm gonna sort of punch it up a little add some stuff and then it's off to the publisher and i won't see it again until it's being copy edited and then it's too late to change anything um anyway this this thought i had i, I was thinking about i was thinking about uh this sort of neo-Hobbesian narrative that I argue against in Civilized to Death, this idea that nature is cruel and vicious and brutal and, um, you know, that there's all this suffering and pain and it's horrible and that civilization saves us from that and thank God for that. And so that's sort of the underlying premise of the justification for so much of the horror of civilization, the slavery and the pollution and the destruction and the disrespect and the, the absence of the sacred and all the rest of it, you know, at least it's saving us from that cruel, horrible, natural world that we came from. And, you know, I, I, there are a lot of holes in that argument, which I 
take a certain amount of glee of pointing out in civilized to death and elsewhere, as you've heard. Um, but I was thinking about how I saw this documentary. I don't, I don't remember. I've probably seen it a hundred times, but there's a scene of a predator, a lion, let's say, you know, catches the, the antelope and, you know, bites its neck and, you know, he's got it and the antelope's dying. And the first thing is, and I actually wrote about this in Civilized to Death, I found um, uh, an entry from a, a journal of an explorer who had a lion jump on him and bite his head and like throw him around and somehow he survived it. And he described the feeling of being in the clutches of that lion and feeling certain that he was dying. And the feeling was that it was a sort of ecstasy that it was, that it was, he, it was a, it was sort of a, um, how did he put it? It was like a dream state. He, he knew he was dying. He knew exactly what was happening. He saw everything that was happening, but he didn't really care. And it was just like, okay, whatever, that's fine. And he just went with it and felt some sort of deep appropriateness. And, and of course, you know, from our modern mechanistic scientific perspective, we say, well, the endorphins were released because, you know, animals have this endorphin release when they're in the clutches of a predator and um, that allows them to die in peace, which is a pretty fucking cool thing when you think about it. That, you know, if nature's so fucking cruel, how did it design the release of endorphins in the brain when the lion catches you? You know, that that's not necessary why is that necessary Who, who's you know it's not like you're going to survive and breed more if you release endorphins there's no evolutionary argument that i can understand for that particular characteristic anyway but on the other side the predator you know must be feeling this like ah, vicious i'm a fucking killer ah, die fucking antelope and but what struck me in the in these documentaries, the image that I have in my head that I've held in my head for years that's always sort of bothered me was this lion with the dead, the freshly killed antelope there. And the lion kind of nuzzles it and licks it. Not where the blood is. It hasn't broken its skin yet. But it's sort of nuzzling and, and licking it the way it licks its cubs there's like an affection there and it creeped me out because it's like you just killed this thing and now you're kissing it it's some kind of like sick psychopath kind of reaction some yeah, something dark. But then I, it occurred to me, maybe it's love. Maybe what the predator is feeling and the reason it, it has this behavior that's associated with love is that that's, the predator is not feeling glee in the kill. It's not feeling bloodlust. It's feeling the same thing I feel when I come back from a long hike 
and I sit down and somebody brings me a hot pizza and a cold beer. Oh, yeah. This is what I need. I'm going to live another day. Ah, I'm going to feel so good as I eat this and drink that. Why, why is it so strange to me that a lion feels gratitude and affection and happiness when she knows she's going to eat and her babies are going to eat and her friends are going to eat? Why have I always been creeped out by that? Because the culture has told me that that is a scene of cruelty and despair and destruction and viciousness. When it seems to make so much more sense to see it in terms of the mercy of nature and giving that endorphin rush to the animal that's dying and the gratitude and love of the predator. I think I've been reading it wrong all these years. I've been seeing it wrong because the culture's indoctrinated me to see viciousness when, in fact, that's a scene of love. Anyway, that's my thought for the day. Uh, I'm going to just jump right in to this conversation with Bruce Perry, who is fucking amazing. I've gone on a little longer than I normally do. Apologize for that. Um, But I had to explain the whole fire situation and why I've been out of sight. Uh, You can follow me on social media. I'm that Chris Ryan on Instagram and uh, Twitter. I I think those are the only two things I really do. Uh, I'm going to play not the whole piece because it's... um, eight over eight minutes long but i'm gonna play part of a piece by zoe keating who is um a cellist and it's called fern and it has nothing to do with bruce it has nothing to do really i don't know explicitly with anything i've been talking about but it's a haunting piece of music And it's very different from the sort of music that I normally play for you on the podcast. Um, I think, I think you'll like it. It's, uh, it's a piece of music that I haven't heard for a while and it came up randomly on my playlist the other night and it's been in my head since then and sort of haunting me. So maybe it'll haunt you a little bit. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm grateful. Grateful as a lion with a freshly killed antelope in my clutches. If you want to support the podcast, you know how to do it. Um, I have to get better. I, I hate insisting and you know yammering about how to support the podcast. But when I don't do it, when I don't say anything, then nobody signs up for Patreon and, you know, 
there's a certain amount of fall off as people's credit cards expire and, you know, or they move on to other podcasts or they decide they don't like me anymore or whatever the hell it is. Um, so I have to kind of remind you occasionally patreon.com. You'll find me there, Chris Ryan, or tangentially speaking, that's probably the, the clearest way to support the podcast. You can also support my endeavors uh, by using my Amazon affiliate link at the website uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com or thatchrisryan.com or chrisryanphd.com. It's all the same damn thing. You'll see the Amazon affiliate link there. And if you use that when you buy stuff, uh, around 5% of whatever you spend gets kicked back my way, which puts gas in the van. And um, also, uh, I... I've said this before, but I haven't reminded you in a while. I give at least 10, probably closer to 20 or 25% of everything that comes into me from you um, to homeless people, to people who in one way or another really need the help. And you just have to take my word for that. I don't keep track of it and ask for receipts or anything like that. Um, but my dignity as a human being is worthless if I were lying to you about that. So that's about all I can say there. But if you do, if you can't afford it and you um, support the podcast, know that um, a significant proportion of whatever you're sending to me is going on to other people as well. All right. Thanks for listening. Bruce Perry. Check him out. Check out his films. Check out his books. Uh, and there's more information about him at my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com. Thank you for listening. And I will be getting back to you with more frequency now that I'm back in my apartment and i am got my computer and my mics and all that shit right in front of me. I hope everything's going great for you wherever you are. And uh, thank you once again for listening and telling your friends about the podcast. I will catch you soon.
I'm sitting in room 458 at the Argonaut Hotel on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco with a guy that I have wanted to meet for, uh, it's got to be, let's see, I was in Barcelona when we were watching Tribe in before Sex of Dawn came out, I'm thinking 2008, seven? Could have been. When? when, when About five or six, the first Five ones. or six. Yeah, no, right. actually, yeah, 2004 or five was sort of the first lot came out in the UK. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember how I got turned on to it, to your show. Um, but as soon as I saw one, I immediately... Uh, Allegedly downloaded them all illegally. <laughs> well done. <laughs> because I didn't have, Welcome you know. Welcome to the gag. <laughs> well, I was living in Spain. How else could I see it, yeah. you know? Um, but, man, I saw, I don't remember what episode it was, but I, I just said, I got to watch all of these. This is, this is, you, you were like the Jacques Cousteau of hunter-gatherer people. And, I mean, I really honestly admire your work incredibly. Wow. Um Thanks, Chris. You know, and and then I went and found your first film where you climbed the mountain with your buddy. Uh, and Cannibals and Crab Pubs. Yeah, you saw that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found that online somewhere. Yeah. Actually, my favorite uh, show. Really? The first one I did. Before I got entangled with all of the film crews and stuff, it was yeah. just me and a friend yeah. filming each other. It's so raw yeah. and real. So you, and, and then I, I looked up your background. I was surprised. By the way, Bruce Perry is the name of my guest. <laughs> I tend to do this. Uh, I'll do an intro later and no, no, tap, all good, tack buddy. it on. Uh, but yeah, like you, your background is surprising because you're you come across as both in person and and in tribe as so friendly and laid back, and and your approach to travel is so. Um, peaceful and and very kind of Aikido approach to things. You just sort of uh, roll Flow. with it, yeah. yeah. And then I looked up your background, and you're like some hard ass, like elite military survival <laughs> killer guy. What's up? You're like What's the British equivalent that? of a Navy SEAL or something. Some, I went through some big changes. Yeah, yeah. I had to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, which what? actually was a beautiful thing to have had which enabled me to go and live with these people and not come with the prejudices because I'd realized how <clears throat> prejudicial I'd been in my earlier life. So, and I'd had these huge shifts in my life where I'd seen myself through a very different lens and God, my God, if I can make those mistakes in my own life, I definitely don't want to be doing that on TV. I better like go and really just listen and not pretend I know anything at all. So it was an intentional strategic shift you made. Well, yeah, I'd just been through some big healings, you know, some big shifts um, as a result of mixing in very different social circles, having girlfriends that questioned my, why you stood to attention watching television, Bruce, you know, like saluting the national anthem after the rugby match. It's like, get back into bed, honey. Right. I was like fully institutionalized member of society. And Are you then, from a family where yeah, that was family. Right. Very Christian, sort of boarding, English boarding school. I was like really like card carrying member of right nationalistic england huh. and um had luckily shifted and um and as a result of that shift i think that sort of opened me and made me realize oh my god there's so much more because i was so you know the one thing the marines does is it trains you to be super confident and self-confident hmm. and then to have that all smashed down you're like it's quite it's a big old humbling experience but doesn't it I mean, there's something enigmatic about the kind of confidence that you get from being part of a military, an elite military organization, because it's 
my understanding is they sort of take away your individual confidence, smash you to bits, and then build you back up again the way they want you to be. Yeah, I think the U.S. Marine Corps and the British Royal Marines do it subtly differently. We don't smash them down to like grind them into the dust in the same way. I uh, think that we maintain some personal aspect and then build on that. Right. But but from the outside, they're pretty similar. Right. You know. So you were. What exactly was your? I, role? I was. A, I was a lieutenant in the Royal Marines. Um, so, so that's the British commandos. So you do commando training at like eighteen. I did it. Right. Um, youngest guy in our batch to do it and then I became a physical training instructor in the Marines right. during my career and ended up being like head of physical training for the commando training center which is a sort of quite a prestigious gig mm. at the age of 23 and then pretty much got booted out for being a drug and always in trouble mm. and uh, what drugs were you using no I was super anti-drugs oh, super. oh I thought you said you got no, a bit drunk of, oh drunk drunk yeah. okay what drugs were you using that's a good start <laughs> We'll get there later, I'm sure. You're using their own drugs, man. <laughs> That's your problem. No, that all came on TV. That's only thanks to the BBC. Really? <laughs> well, you mentioned last night that you've been living in Ibiza for a while, yeah. and it's like, wow, okay. Yeah, Ibiza's pretty far away from the Royal Marines. It's a little bit, little bit far away, yeah. Yeah, you weren't landing on those beaches <laughs> <laughs> in your amphibious craft. Yeah. No, I remember... I remember <clears throat> You know, I was very anti-drugs as a kid, you know, I was so institutionalized sure. in the mind. And if I'd seen someone smoking pot, I would have, like, you know, reached for the phone to call the police. You know, mm. was really quite a strange little chap. I you guess. and I wouldn't have been very good friends no, we back have. in the day. <laughs> <laughs> you got me thrown in jail, man. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah. So, uh, okay, so you, you come from this conservative family, conservative religiously, politically. You have siblings? Yeah, brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happened? Girlfriends. Girlfriends, really? And mushrooms. Girlfriends and mushrooms. That'll, that'll be the name of your memoir. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, pillow talk, you know, someone yeah. who loves you and can see that you're a decent person. Because, of course, even, even still my conservative friends who may not have broken out that space, deep down, wonderful people. Like sure. I, my feeling for all people everywhere. Um, but... <clears throat> when someone loves you can see that element in you and then just goes well what you know asks you to question it and then you just go deeper with those questionings and and you end up realizing yeah maybe that's not as cool as i thought it was and you know and so that was the half of it and then i was so anti-drugs <clears throat> that there was no way i was ever going to do anything until i basically did fall in love and i was so blind deeply in love that i was able to trust someone enough to um allow me to to do something and she introduced you to the mushrooms and actually did and like didn't do an amazing job I mean, she's a dear friend of mine today and she gets a bit sad that i keep talking about this story but it is a life-changing moment for me so so sorry to her for having to go there again but um <clears throat> yeah no like i i it was my first ever opportunity we were in uh in gili in in um you know in indonesia the islands next to lombok and um everyone was having mushroom tea i did it but didn't feel anything in my first ever experience so you know I need need more what's going mm -hmm. on here this isn't working and so I ended up having like three whole cups classic mistake full on yeah. and also the other classic mistake is because my girlfriend at the time had never taken someone as old as me because I was now mid-20s because most of her <clears throat> friends had all done it in their formative sort of teenage years right 
But for someone like me who'd like led loads of expeditions, by that time I'd like led 15 expeditions around the world. I'd been an officer in the Royal Marines. I'd been in charge. I'd been the boss. I was like super confident of who I was. And, and then to have my whole world just crumble during that trip. And then no one told me, or she didn't tell me, don't worry, you're going to be fine again in a, mm. in a few hours. Yeah. And so I just went through that classic other mistake of thinking that I was changed now forever yeah. and then just flipped out. Hmm. Um, what happened? Well, uh, it wasn't a great experience. It wasn't a great experience. I mean, I remember trying to protect her. Think, you know, we just ended up sort of going a little bit of a downward spiral. And I let me literally at one stage walking along a path and <clears throat> then suddenly I'm in a pothole 10 foot down and my arm is 10 foot long and she's right up at the top. I'm like, how the hell did I get down here? Am I looking at my arm, which is stretching right up and then there she is at the top out, miles above me. It's like, how did I get down here? And then closing my eyes and going, I must be tripping. I just got a step foot and then coming out of it. And then seeing pixies and deities all around me. I mean, it was mm. a full on, very mm. visual, very strong, deep journey. At one time I was lying in a, couch with her and she just moved and I was like what's that darling and she goes oh don't worry it's just a cockroach and then looked over her shoulder and saw like a sea a million coming towards her they're grabbing her around saying come with me she goes what is it and I'm not wanting to tell her for fear of her flipping her out and then her thinking oh my god there must be an axe murder you know we just went into the classic (laughs) and that was my first ever drug trip but at the same time later on having this experience because I was really quite Christian at the time it's like, okay, this, this experience doesn't add up to my understanding of what I thought was going on in this, this other space. Hmm. And that was actually the moment that I shifted and went on my own spiritual journey, if you will. It was like, okay, this, is, this, this doesn't make sense to me from anything that I thought previously was, was the reality. You're thinking this afterwards. This is, no, this was actually during, the tour, sort of like, as I was sat down with head in heart, arms, like the sort of coming out of it, yeah. like what's going on? But then also remember in that moment, just going, the, the, yeah, this, isn't, this isn't how I thought it was. There's something else coming here. And so, yeah, afterwards then realizing that I needed to investigate this a little bit more. And it hmm. took years before I did another drug. And you were 25 at this point. About 26, 27 yeah. maybe, yeah. around then. And did that realization shift your relationship with your family? Is you know what? I, 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 I'm in wonderful terms with my family now, and I love them dearly. But for many years, I had to go on a separate path. Right. Um, almost actually from school. Right. Um, I kind of ran away to join the Marines. Um, and um, and I was relatively emotionally um, distant for quite a few years while I went through finding out who I was really. And it took me many years before I could finally come back and confront my own father. It's like that. The rest of the world thinks I'm okay. You know, this is who mm. I am. So mm. I came back and had that moment. That I think we should all have. You know, it's just to identify yourself in front of your your parents. And I hadn't had the courage to do that for all sorts of reasons for many many years until like i was like 40 or something right this is after you were famous and had a tv show or several tv shows yeah yeah um i should specify i'm I'm sure i'll cover it in the intro but for people who are just tuning in (laughs) as if it's a radio uh Tribe, you each episode you were living with some very remote 
uh, group of people for at least four to six weeks. Yeah. And it was you and just a couple of very small crew. Yeah. And uh, you really, I love the show because it was, you know, this is way before Anthony Bourdain. I, I don't know if he ever saw your show, but there's some commonalities there, like a deep respect for the people you're with. And um, it really felt like you were going out of your way to avoid any sort of exploitative sensationalist bullshit so it's funny when i later saw going tribal yes national geographic oh channel uh was discovery actually oh, it was a discovery. discovery yeah so they repackaged the, the i guess the same stuff i don't know if they edited the footage but they did they got to re-edit and oh then god the the intro going tribal with Bruce Barry it was just like oh fuck America how could you do this well also I I I have to admit I that that's me also in a subtle way selling out I struggled so much with those voiceovers and we and they ended up not wanting to to work with me anymore because like I was I'm sorry guys how could I say this is the most this or the most that because it's just not and they're like yeah. can you just say it for, and I'm like but it's not you know so I would end I, did, I wasn't in America doing it down the line from a booth in the UK but I put up such resistance um, but they were paying yeah. and I had said yes I didn't know what I was walking into yeah. and so ended up but that, in a sense that's the only time I guess that I've ever sold out and um, yeah, I struggle with that since, and it's a, it's a shame because they're they're not the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember watching it, thinking, well, okay, at least because I'd been recommending it to American friends for a long time, and you know there was no way for them to see it. So at least this footage is being released in America. But it, yeah. yeah, they really come did. back to see whether or not I'll finish the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will he drink the blood? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You, you said something funny last night. We went out to dinner after. Uh, oh, by the way, you're, Bruce is on tour in the U.S. Uh, promoting a film called Tawai. Is that That's the right? right Tawai, a voice from the forest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're going. We're in San Francisco now. You're going to Sebastopol tonight. Yeah. People won't hear it in time. And then you're going up the we, uh, the left yeah. the left coast. <laughs> up the left coast. Yeah, Chris, we're going up the left coast. <laughs> uh, to uh, where are you going to go to Portland? Arcata, and then um, we're going to Portland before that. Eugene, and oh, then all good. the way up to. Um, Bellingham. Right. And you're going to stop in Portland, Seattle? Do you have I don't screenings? think we have something in Seattle, actually. Seattle, uh, sadly. Uh, okay. Um, you Portland, do in Portland, though? Portland, yes. Okay, cool. And Eugene, yes. Right. Um, yeah. And then back back home. And then in LA on the 23rd, 24th. Right. Okay, cool. Um, if, if I don't get a chance to release this in time, sure. I'll, I'll definitely do the social media stuff and Thank try you, to get man. people yeah, to come you. out. It's a great film. Really beautiful. Thanks, I enjoyed man. it a lot. Um and it, it's interesting. I remember, as I said last night, the episode where you were with the Penan people, and it felt it was it, it was very touching to me because one of the things, and this sort of touches on the Americanization of media as well. One of the things that I struggle with in my writing is the requirement to end on an upbeat note. Everybody wants, all the publishers want your book to end with, and here are five steps that you can take to yeah. solve this problem. And when you're talking about the fucking unstoppable onslaught of civilization, there are no 
easy answers. There are, I don't think there are any hard answers. And what I loved and respected about that episode was I remember you you were squatting on a log and, and you were talking about how touched you'd been by these people and how you'd learned so much and you, you felt some, such a connection with them and yet their world was being destroyed mm-hmm. and they were asking you to help and you didn't know how to help and you were and you didn't sugarcoat it and you didn't edit it out and you just like ended as i recall it's probably 10 years since i've seen it but i recall it ending with your despair mm-hmm. is yeah. that accurate yeah yeah no, it was, a, it, was, it was a very emotional moment for me, and you remember it very clearly. I just remember saying, you know, and I, I just don't know what I can do to help. And, and so what you've, what you've done is made this film. Well, I mean, th- it was weird because, of course, <clears throat> every indigenous group that I visited has got some difficulty that they're reaching out for help with, um, whether it's a dam coming in or a pipeline or a gold mine or missionaries or whatever, they're all... Um, they were all struggling in many ways as a result of the sort of encroachment of globalization and yeah. trade and all that. So each of those groups, I had a longing to go and help. And then especially going down the Amazon, I mean, that series is all about globalization. So I was looking at gold and oil and soya and logging and slavery and cattle ranching, you name it, all of the things. And each one of them was a massive issue in its own right. And so I was left... Um, at the end of all these series in the Arctic as well, it's looking at climate change going, well, what can I do? You know, and, the, and, the, and your heart wants to go and connect to those people that you've met and say, I want to help you. I can use my influence to do this and do this. But I had so many, I just didn't know where to go. And so in the end, it became apparent to me that maybe my role was less to help them directly, but more to look at what is the sort of the the root cause of these things and that's why I made this film it was basically it's actually no we are at the heart of the reason why so many of these people are struggling yeah and so that's why I I chose to to make the film in the way I did but at the same time um it was the Penan that um that had affected me the most in my own journey and so I really wanted to um have them as the center point of this film were they, you said something last night that they were the, the least hierarchical people you'd come mm-hmm. into contact with. Were they the most sort of pristine, immediate return hunter-gatherers that you had been with? You know, I'd lived with hunter-gatherers, I'd lived with nomads before, but I'd never lived with nomadic hunter-gatherers before, and I think that right. was the subtle difference. So nomads being herders? Yeah, so like yeah. I lived with like Siberian reindeer herders, right. I lived with others who've, who've right. sort of moved around, but it but with them, they're still domesticating in yeah. some way. Yeah, we still have property. Yeah, yeah, and ownership and all yeah. of this. So the whereas the Panan were living in a much uh, more, I guess, egalitarian sense of that true sense of like no d- different sense of ownership, right? And um, no hierarchy and all these sorts of things. So that was, um, yeah, that really struck me, and it was weird um, because. I don't think if I'd met the Penan straight away and having not met any other groups, I don't think I would have noticed really the true depth of what it was that they had to offer. I think it's only because I'd traveled and met so many other indigenous groups that when I came across the Penan, it was like, there's something completely different here. Hmm. And that really struck me. And I kind of try and touch on that in the film. It's like they're, they're almost, it's like they're operating from a different operating system. It's like the same, same body, but it's like working in a different way. 
and we kind of look at that a little bit in the film and um and and it took me a while to to figure out what that was and then it took me even longer to have the guts to express it because it sounded so romantic but um yeah luckily i came across some anthropologists who gave me the confidence and they gave me the um sort of the, the knowledge and background to express myself you know so they're they're anarchists but i mean i've got this guy jerome lewis who's who features in the film he says but they're also the most peaceful people on the planet and i'm like you can't say that and he goes no we don't bruce by every means by which we measure these things anthropologists have been living with these types of groups for decades now know that time and again they come out they are the most peaceful people on the planet and they, they have no leaders um and they have no sense of ownership in the same way that yeah. we do yeah and um here they are so it's like and that's what i had noticed no competition within their in the way that they're operating and that seems almost it doesn't mean that they're not competitive beings but it's just that they've found tools in which right. to minimize and limit it right. so much so that it's not evident on a daily basis right i, I appreciated the fact that you confronted that um enigma uh in the film because so often you know i spent a lot of time in these debates you know like Stephen i know i've read your book i mean it's beautiful i mean i'm so pleased to have a chat with someone who really gets it yeah so much thanks um but, you know, this debate about whether or not humans are innately violent, you know, chimp-like creatures often breaks down to, you know, Steven Pinker, in my estimation, misrepresenting the science, claiming that we are, you know, mm -hmm. totally, and it's nothing but the thin veneer of civilization that keeps us from ripping each other's faces off, versus... Um, you know, the sort of easily ridiculed hippie romantic, no, man, it's all about love, just, you know, peace. Yeah. And um, it's like a caricature of the two perspectives. And, and I appreciated the fact that you made the point and you just did it again now verbally saying, look, this is an incredibly peaceful, egalitarian society, but that doesn't mean peaceful, egalitarian behavior comes naturally to our species no. what it means is that there is a suite of behavioral modifications that these people use to um, teach their children to live this way or not even teach invite yeah yeah recommend recommend there's yeah, no yeah. there's no oppression or right. even coercion at all yeah but they show them yes. that this is the way it's to an live embodied wisdom that's that's yeah. carried up and carried right. on and the thing that the point that i try to make is that this is not a noble savage thing this is that their survival depend on each other that the only you know there's this african expression the best place to store extra food yeah, the belly of my brother yeah, exactly right so like what else are you going to do with it there's no refrigeration right so and your brother is going to feed you tomorrow yeah. so this is this is very self-interested in a way so in a way the people who are you know we're selfish beings well okay you're right but in the hunter-gatherer context which is the vast majority of our time on this planet yeah. as a species self the best expression of self-interest was to help the people around you absolutely and be loved and respected because then when your shit needs help uh, people are going to help you so it's an enigma. It's, it's sort of counterintuitive or confusing, I think, because people want to simplify everything. I think it's just very hard for us to see the world outside of our own prism of experience. You yeah. know? And like we are swimming in a world that has a very different way of being. And for us to like step outside of that and see a whole other paradigm 
is 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 a hard thing you know and it's a real privilege to have gone there and literally been with people who don't operate from a space of competition and it's hard when you're it's hard to, to identify exactly what it is, the feeling it is that you're getting. Sure, because there's no. it's hard to see something yeah. for which there's no word in yeah. your language. But there's right? a few moments that came to me. For example, I remember I was with, with another egalitarian group in Africa, again with Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, these amazing anthropologists that, um, that, that are in the film. And I was with the guys. We were running up and down the village, like male African um, dudes, all ripped and muscly and like masculine and and we were literally all sort of like a rugby scrum all arms over each other's shoulders was this in trial it's not in the film oh, no. no this is in we this is actually in something that we shot for to why uh -huh. but it it never made it in uh -huh. so it's in the off cuts that uh, you can see on the website i do remember you wrestling with like maasai herdsmen or yeah something? no they, yeah i've done all yeah yeah, yeah 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 no but this isn't the the point uh, this is a different one right i've done a bit of wrestling right <laughs> you've probably seen it in a few places um but uh, yeah, so we're we're literally charging up and down, making noises and gruff and all the rest of it, and like hoo, 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 and like you know, pretty masculine sort of environment that we're that we're in. Um, and then someone throws this big stick out in front of us, this long, long stick. And then so half of us get one side, half of us get the other side, and we all start pushing and pulling. And I'm like, cool, we're going to have a tug of war. That's what happens when guys get together. And suddenly there's line between us, and we instantly divided into two sides. That's what happens. We're going to compete, and it's going to be us lot versus. That's what every time that I've mm. been in that situation, that's what generally would have happened in my experience. But it didn't. You know, we pushed and pulled and lifted and went, and uh, everyone was flexing their muscles and making sounds. But at no time did you get the sense that anyone was trying to outshow anyone else. Oh, it was right. moments like that right. that to me were like, oh, so nourishing somehow to my heart. It was like, wow, this is different. This yeah. is different, and it. And you know you could just dismiss that as a as a ridiculous example if you want, but for me those moments were very real, and and showed how the it was just it was it was a different space you know. I remember um, in Don't Sleep There Are Snakes mm. uh, about the the Pitaha people that also feature in your film. Mm. Um, the linguist Daniel Everett is is talking about how when he was living with them some. Psychologists wanted to come and study them, uh, their cognitive yeah. uh, profile, and so they came down and, and set up some like computer screens with uh, I don't remember what it was like, you know, re remembering <laughs> yeah. the colors in the different squares, <laughs> yeah, and it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. we're going to see who can do this the fastest. And Daniel was like, mm, yeah, it's not going to work. And like, you, you know, <laughs> well, we need to like get the fastest response times. And he's like, yeah, but no, you'll have a winner and a loser. They won't participate. No, yeah. no one will compete. It won't work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very interesting how that works. But even in places that are relatively belligerent, which like you know the the highlands of New Guinea, where they're um, they're famous for being warlike, yeah. um, still they when they play their famous f um, football matches and stuff, they they will never have they will just keep playing until it's like until there's a, until it's equal. Huh. Have you ever heard of a book called Finite and Infinite Games? No. I think you'd enjoy it. I'll try to remember to send it to you. It's a it's a short little book by a philosopher named. Cars, I think, C-A-R-S-E. Anyway, he, he says, you know, most human interactions can be viewed in terms of game theory, right? Sure. And there are two distinct types of games. There are finite games, which in which there, you play on a certain field. There's inbounds and out-of-bounds. Um, you keep 
points. There's a winner and a loser. You know, there are all these characteristics. But then there are the infinite games where, like, in a finite game, the point is to win the game, right? End it and win it. In an infinite game, the point is to continue to the game. To keep playing. Yeah. 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 And so a lot of what you're saying keeps reminding me of this distinction he makes because when you think about it, you know, we live in this world of finite games. Like you were saying, it's very competitive and, you know, it's a zero-sum kind yeah. of situation. But he points out that so many of our relationships are actually better seen as infinite yeah. games. Relationships, for example. You don't win totally. a marriage, you know, uh, or a friendship. Like, uh, who's, who's Totally. Winning? It's like, you know, the, there's a line at the end of the film where the, the Panan says, I don't know about cars or planes, but if it doesn't last forever, oh, I don't want it. That's a great line. You know, that and is you, such and, a great line. And you think to yourself, well, where, where is he coming from? Is this some enlightened being? But it's not that. It's actually because he's not looking at the world. He's placing his meaning in a different space to where we are. So he's placing his meaning in the infinite, in the i.e. in the future generations, whereas we often place our meaning in ourselves, our, our own comforts or our own happiness. So if you're, yeah. if you're trying to find your, if you're trying to find happiness as your, your drive in life and for yourself, then clearly when you go through difficult times, you're gonna be struggling, which yeah. is something that Viktor Frankl pointed out yeah. in Auschwitz. Yeah. But if you find your meaning, derive your meaning, and you drive in life for something beyond yourself and the infinite, like the future generations, then it doesn't matter how difficult your life is, i.e. you can let go of planes and cars, because, yeah, they're great, but they're not as important as this thing that I'm in, which is this game into the future. Right. And you can, you can let go of all of these things because your, your happiness is found through the drive for this other thing, which is beyond you. And I think that's another thing that sort of collective mindset offers us an insight into. And we can do that. You know, we do have climate, you know, we put our meaning in working, striving towards, you know, the future generations or climate change or world poverty or whatever. You can let go of all sorts of struggles that we have on the individual basis and yeah. then shrug them off and laugh about them because our, our drive and our meaning and our happiness is coming from something beyond ourselves. Yeah. I think that's something that indigenous people can teach us too, because they hold that still, so many of them. Do you feel like, you know, like you said something earlier about how we live in a very different world and, and so we organize ourselves differently or, or we approach it differently. But I, I look around and I see so many vestiges of a hunter-gatherer consciousness in us. And I see our civilization constantly trying to shape us against our interests, right? To make us competitive with each yes. other, for example, right? To make us work hard, to, to make us eat when we're not hungry, to, you know, to reshape us in its interests, not in ours. And so I kind of feel like, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I, I feel like we really haven't changed very much. We're just in a in a context that's against sure. us. It's true, isn't it? But like, you know, when we try and objectify civilization as it trying to do something to us, I think also at the same time, we often forget to remember that we are that and it is us. And it's easy, yeah. it, 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 we run the risk of falling into to victim mode and pointing the finger and blaming. Yeah. And actually it is made up of us. It's like the corporations. We can say how bad they are, but we know that we're the ones who have- Oh, who are, now you've stumbled into it. Like uh, there are, Thousands of people who just went, oh, shit, he just mentioned, because they, <laughs> they know my rant. Oh, right. I, I've got this whole thing, like, I, I conceive of, of corporations as super organisms. Sure. 
that we're embedded within, yes. but they are distinct life I hear, forms. I hear that. I hear that. And so you're right. Let's let's remove that particular example. And like you know, so. <clears throat> And, and I, by the way, where I was going with that anyway wasn't to say that um, that they, they aren't runaway trains that have their own responsibility that we also need to have action yeah. to act upon. It's not just like only about doing our own work. There is action to be done externally too. And that's for corporations, that's for the civilizations or whatever. But I guess the place that I was going with the whole thing was if I see myself as part of it... Um, and so civilization is is us, all of us together, who are part of this this amorphous, you know, new way of being together. One of the things we look at in the film is like, why is it then that the Penan, in their in their society, are um, have a different structure for how they're operating and we seem to be having this other one that seems much more self-destructive and individualistic and all the rest of it right and i think that the the thing we 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 sort of touch on in the film is this idea of perhaps there's different ways of experiencing the world ourselves each of us individually you know and perhaps at that time when the Penan were living they were more balanced in their inner world because they were essentially meditating every day yeah and that anyone who knows if you come out of a week's vipassana you have a very different sort of modus operandi than the the day you went in you come out in a much more empathic connected understanding thoughtful way than perhaps when you went in and this is something that we sort of explore in the film is that maybe um when we were hunting and gathering that is a form of daily meditation. You are using your mind and body and senses in a different way. And you're, right. and, and since turning to agriculture, yes, you can be an empathic, connected, present and aware person as an agriculturalist, but you don't need to be. And maybe over time, we have shifted into basically atrophying that side of ourselves that feels mm. more... That's, and, and that enables us to feel more connected and empathic, right. allowing this other side, which sees us as more disconnected, individual, competitive and aggressive, those parts of ourselves have expanded as a result of this, um, this atrophying. And so maybe this civilization that we are part of is, a, is as, as, a, as a result of all of us operating from this subtly different way. And that's why yeah. I was trying to remove a right. little bit of like the blame because ultimately it is us all seeing ourselves in a much more individualistic space rather yeah. than I think the Panan who genuinely are experiencing the world in a more collective way. Yeah, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, you know, whether civilization is a result of the atrophy of that present uh yeah, I think it's a. I think it's an ongoing yeah. um, flux of the two. You know, the problem is that when you look at the frontier, uh, whether you're looking at you know um, first first encounter uh, reports or you know the American frontier moving across the continent or the Penan right now, or I mean, you you know a lot more about this firsthand than I do, but I know of very few examples of hunter gatherer people who say fuck this let's go farm it's always they're they're drawn into it they're forced into it their land is it's an interesting one in my in my experience um 
Sorry, did I interrupt? You were going to continue no, no. that a little. I was just going to beat the dead horse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, I've I've researched this. Uh, James Scott has written about this. Really. Okay. Do you know his work? I don't know. He's no. a very interesting okay. guy. No, it's an area I'm super interested in. I'd yeah, like to. There's a book called The Art of Not Being Governed that he wow. wrote about. Wow, wow. Um, about people really struggling not to join civilizations. They're roped into it. Generally. Yeah, I think there's definitely some truth in that. And um, But there is also... Uh, I said even the Panan today, even the group that's in the film, you know, I think that the young, the, the young generation coming up find it very hard not to fall into the the trap of having more choice I think all of us like having more choice even though we have to discover for ourselves it's in time that actually having more choice can have its own complications but I think that younger people growing up often um, quite like that um, and so my experience of having lived with groups all over the world is that actually relatively often if the sawmill comes alongside the hunter-gatherer community then actually quite a lot of the kids are happy to go and do that not because they enjoy the repetitive work but because it allows them freedom to not have to listen to the elders and confine to the norms of the society and so that then they can basically do what they want and that's that's the American dream. It's like what everyone, you know, we're all on this drive to have more freedom, more more um, staff, all that sort of stuff. I think th there's a part inside of us all that actually quite likes that, even though in time we realise that it's actually not very good for us mm. and that they were better off and better off before. Um, but it takes a while to learn that. Mm. And I think that the, the groups that I've lived with who have a very slow transition whereby the young, the young ones, as they come of age, have gone out into the world, into our world, and projected romantically into our world, like often we do into theirs, and go, oh my God, look, these people, they have everything, look, and, and they feel quite uh, overawed by it all. And then over a period of years, realise that actually it's very hard to break in, to have all those things. Those things aren't just available for everyone. Right. Um, and then not only that, but also a lot of the social interactions and norms and stuff and ethics, let's say, aren't that great. And then if they're lucky, they have, and it's slow enough transition, they come back and tell the next generations, listen, let's go to that place. It's great. You've got to go and experience it. But what we have here is also amazing. Mm. So in my experience, the, the groups that have, have transitioned slowly have learned that, but the groups that, that it's a very fast thing, often the kids go in and then it's, they've, they've left behind. It's too late. And it's too, they can't go back because they haven't listened to the elders. They haven't learned to reconnect with the forest. Right. So or their the only option is to gone. go, or the forest is gone. Yeah. And it's like the Panan, you know, the group that are in the film, you know, they're very um, vehemently, um, vocal on holding on to their forest because they've seen a lot of their relatives mm -hmm. who have taken um, the you know the money from the the Malaysian government that said who've, who've come in and said look we'll give you cars and houses and schools and all that we'll just take your forest but you can have all this welcome to our world and many of them went in and then of course now they're all living everything shifted they don't have the same the same um social order anymore and you know they're doing okay but the group who are still in the forest are looking at them and going we don't want that right and i think it's also really um you look over 
you look over history and you see how those people who ha do have an understanding of both, both worlds, our world and the more traditional society, societies, if they really get to taste both fully, they will always go back. Yeah. And, you know, one of your early presidents even mentioned it, didn't I? I can't remember. Yeah. You, probably in your book. Uh, yeah. I, I've heard Benjamin it a few. Benjamin Franklin. With there, Benjamin Franklin. There was yeah. a law in colonial America against going off to live with the Indians. Yeah, yeah, because everyone so would go native, you know, yeah. and then all of the all of the people that they tried to drag into our world and they're like, they like gave them all the comforts and all the best things the first moment possible. They would. Yeah. And he was writing to people about that. You know, why is it that the savages will always run yeah. back and our frontiersmen are going native and we can't pull them in? And I've experienced the same myself with a few indigenous groups whereby sometimes they send out um, people into our world to to go and be there, especially young people, and then invite them back to become the sort of bridges and envoys mm. and translators. Uh, I saw that with the Kogi. I was with this, this guy one time. and He'd been sent out for two or three years and, you know, got into girls and computer games and, you know, alcohol and, you know, was dived in fully, became a student in the local town. And then they pulled him back and he didn't want to come, didn't mm. want to come. He's like, no, I don't want to come. But then they sort of put the pressure on a bit like the Amish do. It's like, well, you, yeah, if you don't come back, yeah, no, it's now, like, yeah. if you don't come back, you're not one of us, yeah. you know? And he's like, fuck, well, actually that is me, I have to. So reluctantly comes back and then goes cold turkey for a couple of years. And then I meet him like, you know, two years after that. And he goes, thank God I did. Mm. And where, where was this? This was in Colombia. This was with oh. the, the Coggy people in huh. the Sierra Nevada. Really interesting group. And um, so those are the those are the testimonies that mean right. that, that, that that mean something to me. It's like they've seen really yes, seen both, yeah. really seen both, yeah. and 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 so for me, it's like that. You can listen to the romantic wax lyrical about how great the tribe is, but you haven't really lived there. Yeah. But these are the things that I listen to. These are the. Moments. Do you ever feel in your travels? Did you ever feel like fuck it? I don't want to go back. I want to stay here. You know what? When I was doing tribe. No, not because I didn't see the wonder and beauty and, and um, amazing codes of life that I experienced and, and knew somehow that they were probably more beneficial for me. But I was too addicted to my clean sheets and free time and, um, and freedoms and comforts to, to want to. So I was always actually quite happy to go back and then just like be in a hotel room and like, you know, just be anonymous for a while or whatever, mm. you know. But, actually, but since then, I've done a lot more sort of, let's say, personal work, if you want to call it that, um, where I've managed to um, shake off a lot of stuff that I was carrying before. And now I feel, a, a, now I feel actually much more drawn towards letting go of some of those things mm. and not necessarily to go and live with a tribal group but to maybe be part of something created here i do think that so many of the things that i once strove for strove strived for yeah i think strove is right. good yeah <laughs> strove for um, used to strive for <laughs> used to strive <laughs> over time I actually, you know, the more and more I look at it, the more I think that all, nearly every narrative that we have in our society about what's going to bring us happiness is almost completely 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Right. I Less. Mean, we, Less, not more. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I really, even things that we really hold dear, like, you know, um, privacy and mm. free time and, you know, space 
and all that it's like well no of course we all and it's like even those things like the we all know like more money and like more fame aren't necessarily going to bring you happiness i mean yeah not everyone knows that but i can tell you that's true to that but um even those other things that are kind of sacrosanct you're like no actually even they yeah i remember when i first became first became sort of in the public eye let's say you know the the first big evident loss was um lack of anonymity mm. you know i used to be able to go into a bar restaurant or whatever and just be whoever i wanted and not give a shit and so my behavior wasn't really i didn't have to think about it yeah because i'm an anonymous guy in a city like yeah. everyone else and then suddenly everyone's looking and you're like shit my mum could hear about it. this could be on the yeah. front pages of the tabloids tomorrow or whatever so like so my behavior is limited and i saw that as a massive loss for so many years that none of my friends had to deal with and now i realize the blessing of that and we you know and it's like yes it's a loss but actually good that my behavior is limited <laughs> to some kind degree. of crazy shit were you doing <laughs> i used to be a marine you forget <laughs> pissing in the corner of the bar or no, but anything you know it's yeah, like anything yeah. it's like it's the village mentality of being yeah. known yeah and being yeah. held accountable and that was before social media yeah you know now it's instantaneous yeah. so yeah. just it's like actually even those sorts of things it's like we love our anonymity you know, we see that as a great mm. blessing of society. But actually, even that now, I think, God, no, maybe that's a good thing. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah, well, last night you were talking about another example of this. You were, you were talking about caloric restriction being mm. so yeah. important for good health. Yeah. But weak thing. No, easy access to food is one of the great gifts yeah. of civilization. Totally. Well, totally. yeah, it's fucking us up, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think um, I did an interview with... Uh, um, I can't remember actually. Uh, it was I was going to say the guy we were talking about last night, who who we 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 had some words about. Um, sure, Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he used the phrase. He goes, you no, know, and he said, like, you know, I think it's fair to say that we're waking up to the fact that we're in the sweetie shop now and we've gorged ourselves, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, it's not healthy. And I think that's exactly you know, we we can eat whenever we want and I mean that's that's the obvious one, but in I think in many senses we're in the Swedish shop and yeah. we've realised that all these things that we've succeeded in getting for ourselves aren't all necessarily good for us. Yeah. And the food is an obvious one, you know. I think that we now know that the hunter gatherer diet actually almost completely eliminates cancer and heart disease. Yeah. I mean to the degree where it's tooth decay. All of that. Diabetes. Yeah. yeah it's it's like it's incredibly healthy. And we yeah. look and so often I'm having debates with people about hunter gatherer lifestyle and like, yeah, but you know, they're unhealthy or their life expectancy and all that. It's like, no, 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 you've actually totally got it wrong. Right. Yeah. And they all die from infectious diseases. Thank God we have antibiotics. <laughs> That's like, you know, thank God we have seatbelts now because our ancestors all died in car accidents. Like, they didn't have cars, man. <laughs> but yeah. it's funny because like, you know, I knew we'd get into this space because I'm really excited about your book that's coming out. And like, um, and it's, you know, I... I'm re- I'm really I'm really looking forward to seeing the the sort of the, the the debate you place on the page, because I've often said like I'm not into turning back the clock. Yeah. You know, it's like I I do want a, a convergence of, of what some of the gifts of today. Sure. Alongside the wisdom of the past. Well, that's what I try to do in the book. Okay. The, the sort of central image in the book is like 
you know, we can't go back to the past, no. right? There are too and, many and it's not going to be a great sales pitch. Let's go back and be hunter gatherers. It's yeah, like, it's, no one's really going to buy it. Right, right. <laughs> Even so. if you and me might want to. In fact, I might. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, also, that, that's a very privileged, yes, you know, upper class white yes, man yep. kind of thing to even aspire yep. to, right? Um, yeah, so thanks, the, thanks, Chris. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Takes on to know. Uh, but the way I look at it is like we are going to live in a zoo. There's, there's no way around that. But do we want to live in the Calcutta Zoo or the San Diego Zoo? We want to live in an artificial environment that's designed with an understanding of our natural environment, our natural ways of interacting. By natural, I mean common to the vast majority of our time as a species and in our best interests Mm. in terms of mental and physical and spiritual health. So, like, yeah, we want to live, we're going to live in a zoo, but let's live in a zoo that's made for us, that's made to, you know, designed for our maximum health and happiness not fucking cages mm-hmm. you know so you know i I, th- I do think there's a way uh of integrating these insights into the modern world you know and and also there there's the you probably read joseph campbell the mm-hmm. hero of the thousand faces and the idea that every culture has always had the same sort of central story about someone who goes out you know very similar to what you were saying about some of the uh, hunter-gatherer groups, they send someone out into the world, right? The mm-hmm. travels, uh, the odyssey, you know, whatever, and has these experiences, sees what's out there, and it's, it's searching, seeking something, and then returns home and realizes that what he was looking for all the time is actually here, but he wasn't able to see it before. Sure. I kind of wonder, and when I'm feeling hopeful, I, I think that maybe that's the trajectory of Homo sapiens, that we've been on this journey of discovery and now we're kind of at the at the apex and we're turning back we're turning back toward home but Mm. with the knowledge that we've gathered the the capacity to generate electricity from solar energy and geothermal and waves and you know and understanding um, our capacity to destroy things and and turning away from that, maybe I, I don't know. I, no, I I, I, I have a similar analogy. I use a, I use a different uh, analogy, but I totally agree. I think that the, it is a trajectory, and that we have to look forwards, not back. And that, but we need well, to. Well, forwards remember. is back. Yes, it is. is, is yeah. My the, point, the, right? Okay. Yeah. In yeah. medicine, in diet, in exercise, in sexuality, like so much yes. of the cutting edge next thing is actually. What we already knew a long time ago. Something that we've yeah. lost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing new except what has been forgotten. Yeah, I think said. that I look at, you know, there's, there's sometimes I use an analogy. It fits in with this um, person also who's in the film, the Ian McGilchrist, who's a sort of um, uh, brain scientist, looks at the left and right hemispheres. And one of the things he says that I quite like about how the brain can work is that the information comes streaming in generally to the right first, and that's where everything's experienced, and you're up close to it, and the wholeness is is like in the meditative state where you're just experiencing the stream of everything as it is but that's too too much information to deal with so we put that into the left where everything is like filtered down and parceled out and it's like a map is made and but that's also the realm of separation and maybe that's where we're at now 
And so we see each other as separate and all the rest of it. But that information should then be put back into the wisdom of the right way. All of mm. that, what, that stuff that we've created and all of these what, you know, great technologies and stuff are put back into the space where we see ourselves back once again as part of the whole. Mm. And that's the bit he says that's missing in the way the brain's way. We're sort of staying in the left. But actually, if we can put that back into the wisdom of the whole. And I think likewise is the trajectory of humankind. It's like maybe at one time, <clears throat> yes, we were hunter-gatherers and we were up close, but but um, we and we were living this extraordinary life. But there's a blessing in moving into this realm now. We are in separation because if we can then bring that back into this new vision of of this the, bringing those technologies that are worthwhile into the wisdom of the whole, then. Um, it's an even more beautiful space because we've been on the journey. Mm. We've, we've learned. Yeah. And also not only, but we know, we know what we could have lost. We know Mm. we're seeing it from a a, a wider perspective. We're, we're much more grateful for having been on the journey. It's maturity. maturity. There's this great line in a T.S. Eliot poem where he says, um, the end, our, our, our journeys will, something about the, tr- we won't, we'll never stop traveling or something. He says, the end of all our journeys will be to return to the place we started and know the place for the first time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, to yeah, return yeah, where absolutely. we started and know the place for the first time. Yeah, I feel like maybe that's uh, our destiny as a species if we're to survive. Okay. So I'm, I'm intrigued by, uh, your personal trajectory, because it it seems in some ways it replicates what we're talking about as a <laughs> species trajectory. Like your your origins in this very sort of conservative um, family and and social um, situation. You talk about your girlfriends and mushrooms. And what I'm interested in is why were you attracted to the sorts of women who were saying those things to you? There must have been something in you that was looking for a way out. That's a really beautiful. You know, I've never I've never asked myself that. Um, my reasons for attraction I mean, there's the conscious realm and then there's the subconscious realm. And, like, who knows what's running the subconscious realm with, like, like you know, destinies and, like, even choosing where I was born and all that sort of stuff that you could right. dive into. No idea about any of that. But, um, yeah, I... I guess I was... I guess I was always searching, you know. Um, it, it could be luck. I just found these people incredibly attractive physically, you know, and, and it just so happened that the package came with some stuff that slapped me about. That's possible. Or it could be that there was some other, some other mechanism it, that it was driving me. It sounds like it was me. a repeated pattern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I, I definitely, I mean, you not, know, and they could... Not all hot women are going to, like, you <laughs> know, say, stop, stop saluting and come back to bed, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> or eat these mushrooms. No, but, you know, once you've started the journey, yeah. once you've taken one foot, then you know that that brings benefit. In my view, I think hmm. that I, 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 it's almost addictive. It's like, oh my God, I was wrong about that, and here's here's a new opening. I feel that once you start on that journey, 
then um, then it's it's kind of you stumbling forwards whatever uh, you know you have pauses along the way but you you're on the journey I think f you know I lived in Ibiza for a long time and most people there were all like me kind of black sheep of the family they've all kind of found each other in that space and mm. you ask everyone okay what was the turning point for you i was always interested in that like where is it that you got knocked off the tram lines of society to end up here in ibiza you know because we're all black sheep and they would always have a, they would always have one or two moments that they could point out along the way that did that and it was like, you know, death in the family or near death experience themselves or mushrooms or, you know, something along the lines. And um, so I don't know why I was choosing those people, but I think, let's say with that first one, it, it could have been physical. But then because I got knocked, then I'm in, hmm. then I'm in, then I'm rolling downhill. Right. Did you ever, and, and feel free not to answer this if you don't want to, um, but I wonder if in all your travels you had romantic sexual encounters with the native women no it became really clear to me really clear to me very early on that i'm visiting yeah i'm a red-blooded guy of course i'm always not always but you know i i finding people attractive wherever i go including in the in, in the indigenous groups but if i entered into that space even even sort of subliminally by being open open energetically to that people pick up on it yeah when men and women pick up on it and uh, it's not going to be a benefit to my trying to integrate myself into this community so i just turned that off fully hmm. you just sort of monastic about totally it. Yeah. but like monastic so kind of i don't know if that's sort of like conjures the right image no i just i just turned off any sexual aspect of my being and then just all that into the heart and well did you feel okay from an observational perspective did you sometimes feel like you were with a group where if you had been traveling on your own without all the cameras and all the rigmarole that it would have been that their their approach to sexuality was such that it would have been very easy for you to have yeah. hooked up with women and yeah, they I mean, wouldn't have cared. Yeah, and absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah, I mean, on a few, I mean, everywhere's different. And, and as sure. you know, better than almost anyone else around, you know, every society on the planet has a different sort of set of codes right. for how we do our relationships. And, yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was with the Adi people in the Himalayas where they're um, polyandrous so you know one man with multiple wives or one, no sorry one wife man, yeah. with, uh, with multiple husbands generally brothers right generally brothers yeah. in that part of the world yeah and so I remember I was with Kencho this, this guy who's looking after me and I didn't know this until I saw the translations later because he didn't the guy didn't translate it instantly but, you know we'd always have two levels of translation the guy who was getting me through the moment right and then and then we'd have it much more fine detail translation later so i didn't get the full translation but kencho's saying to me oh my wife um thinks you're really attractive you should kind you should sleep with her t tonight or tomorrow if you want to mm. you know? but i didn't get that yeah. so i didn't have to go through the answer <laughs> to that but it's in the film <laughs> oh, um, so you know so those moments were definitely yeah. there and i definitely had um people coming on to me in different spaces yeah men and women exotic. over the time yeah um yeah you told a great story last <laughs> night how did you begin that we're standing outside the theater and you said what was the line like a gay headhunter gay naked cannibal wearing a vegetable on his dick <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a tree house in a 
treehouse. Yeah, exactly. There was that. There was that one. It's checked every possible <laughs> box on like amazing sentence. Uh, yeah, I. You know, a lot of the reason I ask, aside from just purient interest, was like a lot of um, hunter gatherer groups. Uh, our hospitality is very important. Mm. Because traveling is dangerous and, and it's a great, you invite someone in, it's a great way to learn what's going on. And these networks of interdependence are very important. And a lot of times sexuality is part of the hospitality. So mm-hmm. you're a traveler, you know. I, I, I met this guy years ago in Nepal, uh, it's a German dude who he had ridden his motorcycle to Nepal from Germany. This guy taught me how to juggle. I'll always remember him. He, cool. taught, he taught me how to great. juggle. Um, but he told me the story about how he had gone to Madagascar and hiked across the mountain range, you know, the spine of Madagascar. And there were no roads or anything. This is probably in the early 80s. And he said that each village that he arrived at, all the young unmarried girls wanted to sleep with him. Mm. Because that's just the way they did it. You know, like, hey, you're a traveler. Hey. And it's sort of an honor if you would choose, you know, who you chose would be honored sure. by it, you know. And uh, and he wasn't he wasn't like a, a creepy dude as I remember. He was just like, wow, that's that that's the way it worked there. So I well, I think that you know I that. think there's a couple of thoughts about that. Um, I think there's definitely in if you look at old writing, so you know, the early explorers that would seem to be much more prevalent than today when I think the missionaries have done a good job of right. stamping a lot of that out. Um, so I think that there's probably truth in it. There's also some romance in it, mm. you know, of course. So it's hard to pick out exactly the reality. But I think that from a logical perspective as well, it's well known that, or not well known, but I think it makes sense that especially remote places need to mix the gene pool up. Mm. And they knew that. Right. And so, right. so that would have... Um, probably been something, especially like Polynesian islands and what have you. Sure. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense from so many ways that that would have been something that they would have wanted to do. Um, And so why not? You know, I haven't experienced that in the formal way, but I've definitely been in huts and had cuddles and what have you. Not not that I've had people try to cuddle me. I've generally not responded. Mm. And And the few occasions that... I have stepped, I mean, I remember one time a director, I was sitting with the women because we'd gone out doing some stuff with the women that day fishing, I think. And the director wanted to spice things up and started asking questions, you know, like, so what sort of guy do you look for in marriage and all this? And so he was like provoking the questions through me. He's like, Bruce, I want you to ask them this, and which normally I have my own set of questions, but he was kind of keen on this direction. And, and then he, he asked, you know, the last question he asked himself was like, you know, would you have found Bruce attractive or whatever? And they're like, no, 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 we only look for our own. And that was a relatively benign conversation, except that the next day I totally noticed that the men were treating me differently. Yeah, yeah. Of course they did. Yeah. Because he had upset the balance of trying, I mean, like, they don't know that I'm not serious. There's just a bunch of questions for us. But for them, it's like, oh, is this guy trying to figure something out? And right. that word goes around. And then suddenly I'm in the competition with the other guys for, you know. And yeah. And, and it took me a few days to get out of that. Right. Yeah. To really it, close it down a, again. like a disrespect being Yeah, well, I think there. it's more that they saw me as a brother and now suddenly I'm mm. like the girl that that guy's always maybe thought that they're going to get together. And then suddenly Bruce is like, right. you know, so... Is he, you know, yeah, all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good approach. 
I think, to, to just stay out of that. Yeah. Yeah. You ever heard of Kenneth Good? Kenneth Good, yes. Yeah. Remind me. Anthropologist studied the, the Yanomami and married a woman. Okay. Brought her back to yes. Philadelphia. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 There was a film, wasn't there? Well, there's a book called Into the Heart. I, yes. ne- I don't know if there was a film. I never saw one. But he studied with Napoleon Shagnon mm. and they had a big. Liso and all those guys. Yeah. Uh, who's Liso? Liso came after Shannon. He was the famous. Uh, um, oh. guy who uh, who 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 was um, into the younger boys in the in oh the, the French the yeah, French guy Lisa, oh yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah they've got a word in their language now to to That's police right, <laughs> right right yeah darkness in El Dorado all of that yeah. so dark yeah do you know that book yeah, yeah. it's a great it's a really good documentary as well where they actually go and interview even the Yanomami who were affected by what was going on. Oh, right. Yeah, it's really dark. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for taking us there, Chris. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Well, but that's sort of the opposite approach to what you took, right? And it's, that's yeah. why I mention it. It's like there are people who go to those places and um, engage not only erotically, but, you know, sort of... Did you ever feel that you were disrupting the culture by your very presence? I think that, you know, when I first made these programs, um, because many people who are watching them imagine that the, the world was still relatively pristine out there and that these were relatively unaffected groups. Yeah. Um, and so there was, there was a little bit of a... Um, People were very enjoyed the programs, but once I got chatting to someone for a while, the question would always arise. It's like, you know, but like, should you have gone there? Are you not disrupting these people Mm. in some way? And the honest answer is, of course I am to some degree, you know, but my response in time was like, but these two things. Firstly, these people are fully aware of the outside world anyway. Nearly every single member of it, nearly every village that I've ever visited has all been to the city. They've all mm. watched television. I mean, mm. they might not live there. They live in the middle, but they've all mm. traveled. The world is a much smaller place than we imagine. So I'm not bringing necessarily anything that they haven't seen before. But of course, I'm still there with them. I'm not trying to negate the fact that I'm still, mm. the circus has arrived in town and that is going to have an impact. But the other thing is, is that that impact compared to the loggers, the miners, the missionaries, the gold mines, the dams, yeah, yeah. all of these other things that right. are absolutely affecting their lives today. A group of well-meaning people who are trying to tell their story and highlight common humanity and stuff. Yes, we are having an impact, but I felt that it, it was, I felt okay with it because yeah. I knew that actually <clears throat> these other forces were much more prevalent. And that's in a way why we went, we left doing Tribe. I mean, the last episode of Tribe was the Penan, where we look a, a, a bit more deeply at what was happening to them with the loss of their land. And then I went down the Amazon, almost in a sense to kind of answer that. It's like, okay, let's go down the Amazon and we'll show you what our globalized trade is doing in the world. You know, yeah. That's what's really happening. And that's yeah. kind of why we took that direction. I, I never, when I, I you know traveled through my 20s and most of my 30s and um i never made an effort to to go somewhere extremely remote be you know like people i had some anthropologist friends who were like hey why don't you come with me you know the orinoco and you know you're really into this stuff and i never did because i felt like 
th- that uh, cost-benefit analysis that you just laid out, I never, I, I just felt selfish. Mm-hmm. It was like, this is all for me. Yeah. What am I doing for them? Yes. I'm not doing a show. I'm to, you know, to help them. I'm not, this is just me. This is yeah. just a thrill seek. And I just never felt right about it. And that's become really hard for me, actually, over time. Not hard. I mean, don't, don't, don't need to feel sorry for me. Um, but I have also come across many people in the past who've wanted to go and have those experiences or people who've wanted to go and make their own sort of like YouTube channel films about tribal people and all the rest of it and come to me asking for advice. And it's been really hard because, of course, I have been that lucky guy. Right. And who am I? I want to say the same thing as you, which is actually, you know what? kind of don't yeah but who i can't say that yeah it's just not yeah. i just i just don't have that ability so i've just tried yeah. to invite them to do it in as respectful way as possible i mean an anthropologist who spends a year learning the language yeah. you know of course. You, you get all the medical screening like i get that or someone like you um but yeah I, but even me is you know I do think there was amazing things that came out from our yeah. from our series trial. I had such positive feedback and yeah. people who who had a very different understanding of indigenous peoples in the world because I think we we were very uh, I was lucky to be part of a team and a project that allowed us to humanize yeah. indigenous peoples in the way that I think the sort of voice of God narrative programs before like and here the tribal you know that was often a separation and me going in there and showing how amazing they are and how perfectly adapted they are they are to their environment was a beautiful project for its time and you participating you eating what they ate Mm -hmm. dressing the way they dressed going on the alligator hunt or whatever it was respecting and and loving and admiring taking risks yeah and just being a part of that that was i I felt incredibly privileged to have that opportunity and it definitely hit a nerve in society and that's why it was successful so you know i was very happy to be a part of that but i still there's still there's still um a difficulty that I carry in that also when I when I move with those people I truly made relationships and I know the few times that I've been back to visit one or two groups the first thing is like where have you been you know I am I have become a family member and I know that they're still wondering why I'm not in touch and and there's something that inside of me that is um, is hurt and lost and um, and injured by that because actually it, there is a subtle disrespect in that too and so there is, there is a cost to that. And that's why I didn't want to just carry on going, making more. It felt like, you know, I can't just keep doing, you know, to, these people deserve my individual hmm. relationship continuation as well. And I just can't keep spreading myself thin around the world. That is also something that's really hard. Yeah, you sort of made a career out of loving and leaving. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's a there's I carry that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that last night after after the film in the Q and A, you because it's the first time I'd seen you in person, and mm. my impression of you from the show is this very ebullient guy who I see now. Um, but when you were doing the Q and A, you were extremely subdued, and I thought either he's really tired. Or he's depressed and I thought you know just my own experience traveling because I've traveled as I said for dec- you know well over a decade of my life and the experience of traveling as you know is can be that you form a very deep connection with someone very quickly 
just you know someone you meet in a guest house in Kathmandu, right? But your experience, there's this added sort of turbocharged. You're looking at someone across a hundred thousand years in some cases, and in, in some ways. And so there's a distance and an intimacy that must just be incredible. And then there's the added layer of of sadness that so much of what you're experiencing is disappearing. And you're like bringing back reports from a front in a war that's being lost. I really... I felt that always watching your your programs, but last night I felt it really intensely. Is it hard for you personally? Well, you know, I don't need sympathy for anything being hard for me. Um, no, but you're you're it's it's like you're working in some sort of a cultural hospice or something. Yeah, I I if I if I think about it too much I'm in tears yeah yeah I'm carrying I mean I've drunk ayahuasca on a few occasions whereby literally I have just bawled my eyes out just seeing the earth being torn up you yeah. know let alone the people just yeah. the earth itself and I'm just like crying I'm ca- yeah I remember one time I was doing a sound healing thing um, I was doing I was on a clown course at Ibiza of all things to try to break through some personal stuff and uh and we had a sound therapist come in and we were all doing this this sort of like jump in the middle and make sounds and like you had to, it was, it was terrifying. But anyway, I remember I did it one time and then the teacher was like, Bruce, I noticed something when you were singing there. Do you mind if I explore that? I was like, yeah, sure. He goes, can you just sing this note? And I was like, ah, and then push it like, ah, no, louder, louder, ah. And then I just kept pushing that note and until suddenly I just exploded into tears and I had no idea where it was coming from or anything. And all the imagery was of the tar sands. And somehow that resonant wow. thing pulled up something that this guy saw. And I had no idea where it was coming from. It was just like, oh, my God. You know, I am absolutely a vessel of carrying yeah. so many of those things. And yeah. yeah. And like I, yeah, it does affect my life. It does drive me. It does mean that that's that's gives me purpose yeah well it's it's admirable i i admire you it's hard i mean it's hard for me and i'm at a distance from it you know that i can't imagine how hard it is for you and you have to fucking move your car. That's <laughs> no, really annoying. <laughs> I'm sorry. We get to this really deep point, and it's like it's nine minutes and counting. Uh, maybe we can we can pick this up another time when love that, we don't Chris. have a, a yeah, car about that. to get ticketed outside. Yeah, we could talk for a long time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I hope we will. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, man. really lovely to meet you finally, mate. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity <clears throat> to hang out with people like Bruce. The intro music to this podcast is by a band called Basin and Range. The song is called Bright Side of the Sun. You can check them out at basinandrange.bandcamp.com. There's a Reddit group talking about this podcast. If you're on Reddit, just search tangentially speaking. There are a couple thousand, three, four thousand people on there talking about what a dipshit I am. 
what they like and don't like about episodes, uh, articles that seem to have some bearing on this question of civilization. There's an article someone just posted from the Atlantic um, arguing that young people are having less sex than ever due to things like porn and dating apps and so on. Um, it's an interesting article, interesting conversation going on there about it as well. So if you do Reddit, you can do that. Don't forget, you can order shirts from my mom uh, through the website, tangentiallyspeaking.com. She's got lots of shirts. Lots of them are on sale, as a matter of fact. Uh, and if you order shirts from Sure Design T-Shirts, who makes all our, make all our shirts, um, you can use the discount code CTD, Civilized to Death, CTD, and you get 20% off your entire order. And of course... The song you're about to hear at the end of this and just about every damn episode is Smoke Alarm and it's by the great Carsey Blanton, who you can learn more about at carseyblanton.com. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say to the ground.